Hey, what's up, Z-Pack? It's Dr. Z. Today, I have a really cool guest. You guys know I've been ranting and raving about vaping. I did a video on YouTube talking about uh, Evoli, this uh, e-cigarette vaping-related injury stuff that's been going on. It's been in the news. Well, it turns out today, I have Dr. Dixie Harris. She's a pulmonary critical care doc, also involved in sleep medicine who works at Intermountain Healthcare in Utah. And she was the first doctor to identify the first case in Utah of vaping-related lung injury. She's since heading up their Evali task force. And I thought we should just go right to the source to figure out what's been going on with vaping so that we can talk to our patients, we can understand how we do an intake, how we take a vaping history, because I bet a lot of people don't know how to do that. So welcome, Dixie Harris, what's up? <laughs> Not much, glad to be out here it's a beautiful sunny day dude the bay area has the weather especially with global warming it's like 70 degrees and we're in a i think we're going back into a drought so it's been dry it's really great how's it in utah right now so it's very snowy we've had a great ski season so it's a lot of fun that's good that's good (laughs) so you've been out in um in utah for a while you trained out in uh on the east coast and emory and Mm -hmm. and then moved out and been working with intermountain Healthcare. now how what was the structure of your practice that you that lent itself to identifying these vaping-related injuries? Because you were the first to see it in Utah and report it. Yeah, so um, let me just clarify. So we saw cases of this at the U in July, but at that point, they really thought it was lipoid pneumonia. So the, the, so the U had some cases, but it wasn't publicized, but they were thinking, oh, it was lipoid pneumonia, not recognizing it was this turned into the E-Valley out- outbreak. And so when you say the U, you're the, the U is University of Utah, Utah so, yeah. exactly. So, um, but we didn't even know about it, Intermountain Healthcare. And then again, it was kind of one of these not understanding what was happening. Mm. So when uh, we first identified in myself and then working with my colleagues, um, it was really clear it wasn't a lipoid pneumonia. It was clearly something else. Well, now, how was it that it was diagnosed as lipoid? What were the findings that you guys saw in early in July? So what they found on bronchoscopy specimens and lung biopsies is they found uh, lipid-laden macrophages yeah. and um, just basically lipoid in the lungs. However, not the typical classic findings where uh, lipoid is diffuse all the way in the interstitium, all the way through the alveoli, whereas uh, it's more just the alveolar macrophages absorbing the lipoid substance. And that's what they identified. However, it's clear that down the road, it wasn't the lipoid pneumonia itself. It was more the uh, burning, basically, the chemical burn. And that's kind of what had got defined later. On uh, autopsy series and lung biopsy series later on. That, that's so interesting because lipoid pneumonia, I remember the classic teaching, and for people who don't understand this, lipoid meaning fat, mm-hmm. um, mineral oil aspiration. So right. people who are drinking mineral oil and it gets in their lungs and they get this terrible pneumonia, this lipoid pneumonia. So this was different because it wasn't so diffuse. It was just Correct. these macrophages which are cleaning up right. the, the fat. And what you were really seeing is more of a burning scenario in, right. in the and, lung. And that's what really what we understood much later looking mm-hmm. at autopsies series. And those are reports in the New England Journal um, where they reported that. And they reported uh, the different cases of, again, open lung biopsies, bronchoscopy, and then the autopsies. They had two autopsies in their case series of 17. But that was 
later. That was probably, I think that came out in October. Wow. And so how was it, now, and by the way, lung biopsy, I mean, that's pretty serious. So people were wondering what the heck's going right. on, right? We really don't do lung biopsies unless we absolutely don't know what's going on and we need to know. Right. And how are they done? They're surgically done, correct? Yeah. I mean, you can do, um, you can do cryogenic, which is a frozen section. Uh, not many places in the U.S. do it, and uh, it has side effects, obviously bleeding complications. Um, most, and then we can do transbronchial biopsies, but really the best way to get really understand the pathology of the lung is do the open lung biopsy, right. thoracoscopically typically, and you get a piece about the size of a thumb. Right. Typically you do multiple lung lobes. So um, yeah, but we really relegate that. Like for most workups of interstitial lung disease, we are not going to open lung biopsies anymore. Yeah, that's why I was surprised when you said lung biopsy. Mm -hmm. I, I thought, oh, that's interesting. And so you didn't really know what was going on. So then what was the picture? What was the radiologic picture you guys were seeing in these cases? So, you know, I'm gonna go back back to when we first found this yeah, yeah, and yeah. and then um, kind of explain it. So I'm in my clinic minding my own business. I got a call from my hospitalist hey, who said, help. hey, I'm here at my hospital and we've got this patient who's been here five days. They've got this diffuse infiltrate and um, it looks like a viral pneumonia or maybe even PJP or, you know, but the patient doesn't have his HIV negative. We know the patient has been, not been smoking, but has been vaping. And then they said, we, keep, we have the patient on antibiotics. They're still running fevers. They are still hypoxic. They're not on the ventilator, but we have this ongoing process in the lungs. So they said, can you come over and do a bronchoscopy on the patient so we can get some further information and see, is there an infection down in there and what do we treat the patient with? Yeah. So I literally ran over and did the bronchoscopy emergently and uh, sent uh, the material off for extensive cultures, viral cultures, fungal cultures, bacterial cultures, did cellular analysis to see what kind of inflammatory cells were in there. And um, then we sent it off for uh, further evaluation. So... I saw that patient. It was very clear because I got the cellular analysis back pretty quickly, and it was clearly inflammation, but the stains were negative. Hmm. Gram stains were negative. So I said, okay, we've got some sort of inflammation. Let's get this patient on high-dose steroids. We had him covered for broad antibiotics. When was this, by the way? This was early uh, early August. Hmm. And then that afternoon or that evening, I had a telecritical care shift. And in our telecritical care system, we cover 24 hospitals in our system, Intermountain Healthcare, plus small other hospitals throughout the state and a couple of surrounding states. And that's a predominantly rural state, right? Yes, in terms of Utah, so and that's, you need this. Yeah, we definitely need the yeah. critical care. And then um, every new admission to an ICU anywhere in the system that's not covered by an intensivist. So if you're at a small hospital and you don't have an intensivist, then we will then go in and go over the case with the hospitalist yeah. or the family practice doc or whoever's at the bedside and go over the case and make sure we're going the right direction. It's very collaborative yeah. and we work together with our bedside physicians. And so what happened is the exact same scenario. So the these first several cases we saw several days of nausea, vomiting, mm. fevers, uh, horrible achiness, feeling feeling like they had the flu, but this is August. So systemic inflammatory Very. symptoms, mm -hmm. yeah. And I mean, terrible abdominal pain. Most of them ended up getting abdominal CT scans. Wow. Because the pain was so bad. And many times the abdominal pain and the abdominal symptoms predated the pulmonary symptoms. And these were all young patients. And we were talking, the first several patients we saw were under age 30. 
Wow. And no health problems. No then, medical problems. So this weird syndrome of abdominal pain, flu-like symptoms, then mm-hmm. progressive pulmonary symptoms. Right. And yeah. then the x-ray pattern, the ones we've seen have been very classic. I mean, there are several reported different patterns of this. Again, this is a syndrome, so we just kind of put it together. But the, the one that's typical is the one we have uh, pictures of we can show. Um, so a second patient, second hospital same day, Mm. identical symptoms. Mm. So we actually, because we still didn't know what it was, we moved that patient to one of our big hospitals that had a person that can do an emergent bronchoscopy. Mm. So we did a bronchoscopy on that patient. And then, um, again, put the patient on steroids because they'd already been on antibiotics Mm. and the stains were all negative. And then two two days later, so not the next day, but the day after, um, I was doing another telecritical care shift and I ran into two more cases, identical symptoms, Two other hospitals. So four hospitals, four identical situations, scenarios. Wow. And kids in their 20s who didn't have any medical problems. So this is already triggering probably your spider sense. Like this is mm-hmm. not normal. It's this not something abnormal. we see. The, the, these, are, these are findings that you would see in like, you know, a strange infectious thing or a strange environmental exposure. Or there's a whole differential diagnosis. Exactly. That's what we're thinking. And right. then these kids were all, you know, we were getting the vaping history. So we're just like, what you're vaping, mm. you're vaping. And then most these, especially these early, actually, especially most of our cases, they're vaping pretty much continuously e-nicotine. Like, all the time. So always, so in other words, background radiation of just constant e-nicotine use. Yeah, almost all our cases did e-nicotine. And then many of them admitted to, and then we would get sometimes, we didn't do tox screens on everybody because if they told me they were vaping THC, okay, I know they're vaping. I don't have to get a tox screen. So um, Mm. I'd say uh, a large percentage were also vaping THC. Got it. And so okay. THC oil, be very real, it's, you know, it's in the oil base. And, so and, that's kind of where it kind of led down the path. And were these pre-made vape pens that they sell at dispensaries or were they sort of, they're buying the juice separate and they're vaping it out of a different device or is it the pen? What, what were you so seeing? So most of the patients were doing, um, you know, the, at the time, most of it was Juul because Juul yeah. owned the market as far as e-nicotine. Right. As far as the THC, it was all over the board. It's all open open container so they add you know whether they bought it pre pre-added from mm. cartridge from a from a friend or black market or behind the garage or you know it was a very interesting because we in utah yeah, we yeah. don't have medical marijuana so don't we have, have no yet. dispensaries got it and so patients were having to get their thc elsewhere like like vegas Vegas yeah, or, or yeah, somewhere actually, else, Vegas or, and yeah, Colorado or, or and black market, yeah, and, California. And what just uh, there's a side thing, but I think it's kind of interesting. So the LDS Church in um, in Utah, what is their sort of stance in general on vaping? So you know there is an acknowledgement, and I'm I'm not a representative of the right, church, of course, so I'm yeah. not going to speak for them. But there is a medical indication for THC. So let's take that Separate off thing. the table. Yeah. Um, I, as far as uh, nicotine and smoking, they're anti-nicotine yeah. and smoking. As far as vaping, THC, recreational, I don't know. My guess is no, but right. I can't tell you. What do you? So it's it's not a it's not a yeah it's not a con- necessarily a condoned thing by the. I mean, most yes. predominant religious uh-huh. group there. So th- that's interesting. So th- this is sort of, a, again, a kind of a, a side thing, a, a black market thing, uh, not something that you come out and just go, hey, I'm doing this. Well, that's the other thing is uh, through all this identification 
And again, you know, when I first found this and I was asking my colleagues, I say, have you seen the case? You look at this. Because again, remember when you do sign off, right? You talk to your colleagues. And if you have an interesting case, hey, look at this. What do you think about this? So one of my colleagues actually said, hey, I got a notification from Wisconsin. They Uh saw a small series of cases there. Mm. And they had alerted there through the Department of Health. And so after we identified the first several cases, I called the our Department of Health. And that's how the whole evaluation and the alerting happened. That's fascinating because I, I remember reading that Wisconsin had the first sort of publicly reported cases right. of the association. And I remember reading about it in the news. And so then you put two and two together with your colleagues and said, hey, wait a minute. We need to get this looked at. That's fascinating. And again, this go, this speaks to a couple things in my mind. One is the telehealth component, which allows you to see a lot of geographically disparate patients and right. make connections. Because if there were different docs in all those places, would the connections have been you made? You would not have made it. It's interesting. So, so we, by by focal, like unifying it to telecritical care, and yeah. then all our nurses have uh, been watching for it. Uh, all our telecritical care nurses. Ever since we started looking for it, we let all our nurses know, every time you see a patient, especially a young patient who has these x-ray findings, try to get a history of vaping. Ah, wow. And I want to do not let me forget to come back to the nursing component of this in terms of triage and in terms of our call to action towards the end, which is this is how you get a history of it. This is how you look for it. This is the questions you ask. This is how you would report it. And then so what you were seeing then, what was the course of the disease that you were seeing? Was it very severe? So very early on, and in fact, even now, uh, we've had, well, we're at over 122, but we just analyzed the data on 114, Mm. and we're about a third land in the ICU. Uh, We initially had a few uh, require mechanical ventilation. Mm. Uh, However, um, I don't think any in the last 30 have needed mechanical ventilation. So our our course has decreased as far as severity and for multiple reasons. Number one, uh, we figured out very quickly, rule out typical infections. You know, again, we, this occurred pre flu season. Mm. So we didn't have to worry about the flu so much, even though we did run the RFAs for the viral panels for flu and all the other types of viruses. Um, We were less worried about the flu. And then, um, most of the times we would cover for atypical bacterial infections mm-hmm. empirically. Mm-hmm. And then once we got our testing back negative, then we would we would stop that. But meanwhile, many times within the first 24, 48 hours, after we figured out how to, how to treat this, we get them on steroids pretty quick. Got it. So high-dose steroids, mm-hmm. um, empiric antibiotics covering atypicals, the kind of pneumonias you would see, right, right. Uh, ruling out viral pneumonias, but not so worried about flu early because it was August or something. Right. But uh, of course, now it's a little more complicated. You have to rule all those other things out because they can look very similar. Getting a good history and then seeing how it unfolded. Are you seeing a lot, were you seeing a lot of secondary infections, secondary pneumonia? Uh, so we have seen some, yeah. and that's very concerning. Um, we've seen, um, and then that's actually been reported nationally that uh, subsequent people will have pneumonias or other sequelae. We've seen uh, barotrauma, pneumothoraces, pneumomediastinums, 
Um, is this from ventilation or is this from just the disease process? The disease and the vaping. Ooh. Oh, um, wow. So the vaping itself is so causing I, some structural... So I can't prove that, yeah. but it, there's a lot of correlation there. That, uh, And I'm not sure, but I have a feeling it's the vaping e-nicotine that's also contributing. So I've had several patients that have had spontaneous pneumothoraces. Wow. And they, and can, they continue to vape while they're in the hospital. And until we got them to stop vaping, then we were able to get the chest tubes out. Holy smokes. So, it's, so just real quick, would you ever let your kids vape if... They asked you I would and, tell them not to. Yeah. I mean, you know, the thing is, the kids can hide it. So yeah. almost always the parents don't know. Yeah. And I've, the youngest I've seen is 14. 14. And, and this is the thing about vaping. And again, I, I say this from personal experience. I've tried vape pens uh, to try them out. Mm -hmm. It's enjoyable. It doesn't smell. Uh, if it has nicotine, you get nicotine. If it has something else, you get something else. It's discreet. You can do it in places where people would never know. This is a technology that has not existed. It used to be if you're gonna smoke cigarettes, you're gonna stink, you're gonna be stigmatized. There's gonna be a yeah. lot of stuff going on. Now it's like you can do all of this it tastes like candy the way the jewel uh, flavor juices are. The and, flavor day, yes. and people who would never have smoked before are now trying and starting. And, you know, there's a whole harm reduction thing. Well, if you're smoking already, then vaping's the only thing that gets you to cook. Well, okay, that, that's fine. How about this? How about we try never to start? Um, and so I, I did a rant on this and got a lot of pushback from the vaping community. There's a community yeah, of you vapors. Will get <laughs> I'm sure you're getting it too. And, and the thing is, okay, that's fine. That's great. Yes. Kids, and I say this, kids are debilitated and potentially dying on ventilators, having complications from something that we just don't even understand well enough to understand. So let's just put put that clearly out there so people understand why we get so preachy about it. Because otherwise, look, hey, I love to have fun too. I don't like to die. I don't like young people to be hurt. So that's really the bottom line. So I just had to put that out there before we go deeper in the rabbit hole of what could be the components of this that are actually yeah. causing it. Yeah. So have you had any, since you're kind of public about this, any sort of uh, pushback from... You know, I have not looked at my reviews. I'm sure I'm getting some. <laughs> um, you know, but, you know, I look Don't at Don't go it, to Yelp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I will just say this. You know, I am taking care of patients weekly. Yeah. I see them weekly in clinic. I see them weekly in the hospital who have suffered mm. and have l injured lungs from this. Mm. So a few questions are, do they have long-term injury? We yeah. don't know. Right. And that's one of the things we're studying. Uh, I've had, and I still have some patients who are still on oxygen. Uh, the other thing I will say about this whole E-Valley. So we've got E-Valley. Right. And then we have other probable lung injuries and other injuries from vaping. Uh. Okay, so... I kind of look at this whole E-Valley event as to kind of shining the light of what was happening on a medical standpoint to the lungs and to the body with vaping. Mm. So all of a sudden the medical community is now very focused on this, right? Yeah. And so we turned on the light, so we see the big monster of E-Valley. Yeah. But we also see the roach, the cockroach there of just smoking e-nicotine. Oh, and there's maybe a little rat over there of vaping essential oils. You know, so there's, we're really learning, wait, uh, different things that you vape get deep in the lungs can cause different types of damage. Hey, you know, and why does this surprise us so much? You know, it's like this makes sense. You're inhaling foreign material deep into lung. These are tiny particles. They're the products of combustion or heating. And 
we just don't know enough about it. I mean, how long did it take us before to even recognize that cigarettes caused lung cancer, emphysema, right. and the other things it did. It took us for quite a while. And decades. It, decades. And it didn't help that there was a lot of lobbying from tobacco and that sort of thing. Right. And that doctors were smoking at the nurse's station <laughs> and, uh, you know. And so now it's like, we, I think we have a better public health apparatus. And it's interesting because now you're using technology like this telehealth network that you have. You have Intermountain, which is actually, this is not necessarily a um, pure academic institution. This is a multi-specialty uh, health system that now is actually on the ground recognizing and transmitting this knowledge so that we can improve outcomes. So I think that's very important to point out. I mean, right. you're, you're not an academic physician, right? No, not me. I, I take care of patients yeah. and I'm trying to mitigate my patient suffering. And that's that's been my goal all along. As soon as we recognize it, we want to get it out everywhere, let people know. And I will also say that most of my patients, and we don't understand as far as E-Valley, uh, they'll tell me they are vaping the THC. Mm. In addition, most of them are also doing E-nicotine. But we do know it's the THC, the tainted THC was the culprit in E-Valley. Okay, so we can talk about that. But yes. what my these kids are telling me, and I'm saying kids, 20s, 30s. They're in telling, other words, kids. Yeah. <laughs> they're telling me that, yeah, I'm doing it with my friends. I got really sick, but nobody else got sick. So there's some sort of individual susceptibility. Yeah. Because many times, you know, especially in Utah, they're getting it surreptitiously, illegally, or they call it black market, you know, however you want to define it. But they're not getting it from legitimate sources. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the question again is, it's like anything in the supplement industrial complex. You know, we talk about the healthcare industrial complex and pharma and all that. The supplement industrial complex is fully unregulated you never know what's in, even in your vitamins and then you have people you know with essential oils that they're vaping and things like that and because it's natural or because you know like thc comes from a natural cannab cannabis plant people think it's okay and it's absolutely that's right. crazy crazy talk so 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 what was it was it the vitamin e acetate that i keep reading about they think we're seeing on the bronchial alveolar lavages is the culprit do we know what it is what is going on so um you know first off we don't have an animal model yet you mm -hmm. know so you know going back to scientifically proving something causes something right right you have to be able to uh, repeat it in a scientific setting we haven't done that right um we have correlation that's we it. have correlation yeah. but it's really pretty strong pretty strong because not only are we finding finding vitamin e acetate in the thc oil now mind you the thc oil should be 70 to 90 percent pure thc right okay in utah we found when we analyzed it it was 15 to 30 percent pure Mm. So it's been diluted. Yeah, so what else is there? Yeah. yeah, and again, like one of my patients was telling me, yeah, the black market THC cartridges cost $20, but when I go get it from a medical dispensary in California, it's $100 plus $20 tax. So mm. the point of it is there's this level of... Dilution or... Dilution, which mm. is... Fi there's financial incentives for of that. Of course. So you have this diluted THC cartridge, so we know that. And vitamin E is not supposed to be in there at all. So they're diluting. But vitamin E, viscosity is very similar to THC oil. Ah. It passes the, what they call the bubble test. Oh, so to explain that. So the bubble test is when you turn the THC oil in the cartridge upside down, the bubble will kind of Slowly rise to the top. rise up, yeah. So indicating the viscosity, same color. So vitamin E acetate, you turn it upside down. Ah. So, pay, so these, these kids and these people who are using it 
they think they're actually getting legitimate THC oil. Right. Okay. So, uh, you know, and I will say, you know, these are, these are, you know, these kids are doing it innocently. People really didn't realize how much harm, potential harm they could be doing to their lungs because it's been considered extremely safe. Yeah. Yeah. And it has. You know, so. I, think, I think the bigger companies, for the most part, we haven't seen a lot of stuff happening. Uh, and, and so I think the vape guys will say, well, this is just bad product, bad use pattern, whatever it is. And you can't judge the whole vaping industry by it. But the truth is we still just don't have enough data on any of this long term. Right. Yeah. And that's what, and that's the other thing is, okay, so if you smoke cigarettes, you smoke a pack a day. It's 30 to 40 years before we see the increased risk of lung cancer, before we see the COPD. You know, when does the COPD start? 20, 30 years later yeah. is when we start really seeing it. Yeah. That doesn't mean it's not damaging. It's just little damage all along. Yeah. And then the problem is, especially with nicotine, the brain is so addicted that you can't stop. Yeah. It not only can't you stop, but what you see is the psychology of denial. So people get very, they get, I think they get very defensive about it because they are dependent on this. You see it also in uh, people who suffer from cannabis hyperemesis syndromes and things mm -hmm. like that. If you would tell them it's actually the cannabis that you're smoking for your nausea that's causing your nausea and right. you're taking these <laughs> you're, you're doing this classical behavior like taking these hot showers and they go no way, bro, and they walk out, they're angry, vomiting and angry. And mm -hmm. it's because you're challenging a core belief, you know? It's like that movie Inside Out. You have there all these little things in your brain that are pulling the strings, little emotions and these core memories and core beliefs and you're challenging a core belief and they're going to have all this confirmation bias. They're going to pull studies that support what they think and reject any information that directly challenges it. That's been one of the challenges with this. So I think the first step, like you said, is let's do the science. Like what, what's an animal model? You know, we got to find an armadillo or something that loves to vape and <laughs> study it and see what it's doing and make sure that we can actually show as much causality as is, is reasonable. Right. Yeah. Right. Even with cigarettes, it, they never, you know, it was such a strong correlation, you know, 10,000 X, you know, whatever it was, right. risk of lung cancer, that it, it just became clear and there was a mechanism and there was, you know, it was plausible. So whether it's vitamin E acetate as an adulterant in the setting of THC oil, combined with background nicotine smoking that maybe puts you at risk, who knows how it's interacting with air pollution and other insults to lung. We just don't know. We don't know. Which yeah. may be why some get sick and some don't. Some don't. I mean, for example, and you know this, um, only about 20% of people who smoke really get COPD. You know, yeah. it's, you know there's, and then uh, women who smoke tend to have more airway reactivity with their COPD and emphysema, you know, so it's, it's variable of, you know, what, what, how your body handles it. You've, you and I have both seen patients in their eighties and nineties who've smoked all their lives, have no heart disease, have no lung disease. They're perfectly fine. That's the unusual case, obviously, yeah. but not everybody gets sick with this, but why take a chance? Why put something in your lungs like this? That, see, that's, that's what I said in my video and I got, you should see the comments on this thing. I don't care. I don't read them. I read like three of them and I'm like, oh, I get it. They're like, but, 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 listen, old man, why are you telling me what to do with my body? This helped me quit smoking. This is harm reduction. It's the adulterated stuff. And it's like, but why? Let's just go back to the but why. You yeah. don't need to do it. It's not necessary for survival. And it puts you at risk. Now, people have to do the risk benefit calculation. Right. And I think it's our job to be able to understand what the risk and benefit calculation is. Now, we're really good at the risk. 
we often don't talk about the benefit for people that they seem to derive. And mm -hmm. I think that's like cigarettes are an interesting one. Like it's so easy as a pulmonologist, I imagine to be like, this is the worst thing in the world. Why would you ever do this? And then you talk to the smoker and you realize this is their only social connection. They sit smoking with their friends. There's an oral, uh, hand oral sort of uh, thing. There's so much that goes into the addictive dependency to the nicotine. It's nicotine not just is, the nicotine. Yeah, I mean, nicotine of a drug is it's very unique because when you're stressed and you smoke, it calms you down. Yeah. And then when you're feeling really sad, depressed, you smoke, it makes you feel better. It's it's a it's very interesting. It has a binary effect. You know, I don't you know, know about you, Dixie, but I'm really craving a cigarette. Right now. <laughs> and uh, I'm thinking menthol. I don't know. I, you actually had a quick question about that. So are menthol cigarettes worse than regular tobacco, to your knowledge? I just don't know the answer to this. I don't know the answer. Yeah. Because no. it's another adulterant, right? And it's this... I mean, it's been around for years, so... Yeah. I don't know that there's been any studies to say show safety. I know that um, there's been a big push in the e-cigarette to get rid of the flavoring, flavored, okay, yeah. but not completely, right? Because there's an exception, right? So, and that's why, and I, I, I get this from, because I talk to the 20-year-olds and they tell me, yeah. oh yeah, my friends, they're now doing the, what they call puff bars, because it's disposable flavored e-nicotine. Mm. So there's apparently, they can sell that, the disposable ones, instead of the reusable ones. I see. So the that's flavoring the is still somewhere in there. Um, and then that, that's the loophole for, they'll always There's a loophole, and you know, and I think it's important for people to realize None of these flavorings have been tested for safety. It's designed to go into your stomach and be absorbed and metabolized, right? You know, you have acids in your stomach to to metabolize it, right? We don't have that in the lung. In fact, you are avoiding uh, with pulmonary, and I, you have to remind me of the anatomy here. Are we avoiding first pass metabolism when things go through lung? Because they're getting absorbed, they're going to. Uh, back you're to mainstreaming nicotine. That's when you vape nicotine. I mean, I remember when we would use, in the old days, we used to do codes. We'd put, what, epinephrine right in the ET tube? Yeah. It goes right into the bloodstream. Yeah. And um, it's, it's, you know, the, the airways are surrounded by blood vessels. The alveoli are surrounded by blood vessels and just absorb so quickly. Instantly. Well, you know, and so it's interesting because when you think about how quickly this stuff goes to your brain, I'll mm -hmm. give an example. So people who smoke DMT, which is a, one of the most powerful uh, psychedelics, uh, there's a crystalline form of it. Um, Joe Rogan talks about this on his show. Others have talked about this. The description, and actually my producer, Tom Heineber, has done this and described this. You inhale from the bong, the substance, mm -hmm. And on the exhale, so the outbreath, you are launched out of your body into a psychedelic universe of no ego and all this. That means that that's like- It's gone in immediately. And it's in your brain. It's mm -hmm. crossed the blood-brain barrier in your brain. There's no first pass, there's nothing. It's there's just nothing. in it's your brain. Straight. So that's what we're doing with these compounds. Mm -hmm. And we need to understand what we're doing so kids understand the risks and benefits of it. I think right now nobody knows and they think it's, they just assume it's safe because it's out there. And that's why the work you're doing is so important. How, now, but here's a question, so how do you do this workup? How would you advise people, whether they're doing telecritical care, telehealth, primary care, nursing triage, how do you work up a case like this when they come in? So, you know, this is very important because let me tell you the experience Many times, the first time we ask, we don't get the history. Mm. Maybe they'll admit to smoking or vaping e-nicotine. Maybe. 
sometimes it takes several providers to even get the patient to admit to doing THC. Mm. You know, so what I say is they don't. And I think it's people are denying, you know, don't want to admit this is actually causing my lung issues. Right. And, 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 and so they don't want to always um, answer yes to doing it. And, and I'll say that this data is supported by a Kaiser study that looked at women who were asked about cannabis use during pregnancy and then were subsequently tested. And it turns out, I think roughly half of them were not being honest about cannabis use. So people are very much uh, close to the chest on this stuff. On this. Yeah. And, you know, part of it is they're coming for help, obviously. You know, yeah. if you're going to see them, they're coming because they're having medical problems. So I'm very empathetic from that standpoint. You know, yeah. We want to help you, but we have to continue to ask the questions. So the question I ask now, this is the latest, because part of it is the vaping. Now we have the heat not burn system, the ICO system. Yeah. And just got released in the fall, first store in Atlanta. So again, taking the tobacco leaf and heating not burning, essentially turning into vaporous form. So again, as somebody wouldn't call it vaping. Right. It's an old, it's a, old it's school old vaporizer. School. Yeah, yeah. Where it heats it. And yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. I might have had one of those in college. So, <laughs> so instead of... Trying to, now do you vape? Do you use a water pipe? Do you do use a hookah? Do you do this? Do you do a, you know, you can either go ask all these things or say, do you breathe anything into your lungs other than air? Ooh, I like and that. And I just simplify it. The other thing that I found that's been very helpful is, you know, reviewing our cases and reviewing when they first present. So many of our cases present to Instacare first, then mm. get sent home. Well, you so probably it's like have a, a quick care. Yeah, uh, you probably care. have a virus. You can go home, urgent care, Instacare, or to their primary care, and then they'll go back in. And yeah, in most of these e-valley cases were stomach, you know, GI symptoms, right? So yeah. they would say, well, you probably have a stomach bug. You know, you're fine. But if you get worse, come back in. You know, that's always the answer. Mm. Um or they're always a recommendation, but um, many times, you know, so we have our intake. And our intake in our system, we've codified, uh, do you smoke? But we have not put into our EMR the questions of vaping. And so our nurses are asking, and people are a lot more aware to ask. Mm. So first off, we've got to ask the question. Mm. We may not always get the the correct answer the first time we ask so yeah. i say ask 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 yeah. um but uh we need to put it into our emrs so we're it's like a checklist right you don't have to you don't have to remember to ask the question it's there you go through it and our intake nurses especially in the eds are critical the first person that sees the patient right yeah and yeah. they and they're in fact many times that's where we get our data like somebody's coming in they're coughing they've had these gi symptoms and maybe they're starting to be a little short of breath and mind you these are young people so they've got good lungs yeah um but the nurse will ask the questions and many times it's oh the sat's 91 91 mm. percent sat on a 23 year old that is not that's normal. very abnormal and and that's one of the criteria right? like less than 95 percent stat you and the history of vaping you probably want to do you admit them? What do you do at that point? Well, you know, we actually have been very aggressive in our system, and um, we've treated several as outpatients. I will say, if you treat them as an outpatient, very close follow-up, yeah. um, and the patients are educated as such. Yeah. Um, and it really is the milder cases. Obviously, if they're severely hypoxic, they have to come in the hospital. I've had one patient that I co-managed with my internist. We were able to keep the patient at home, but she had to come see us daily. Wow. We had to put her on oxygen. Mm -hmm. We, you know, did just what we talked about. 
cover with antibiotics until we get our testing negative. Oral steroids? Or? And then we put on oral steroids. Got it. Mm-hmm. And, and doing that at home. Yeah. And she did it at home, but it was only because we Good were able follow. to follow and we made sure there was somebody at home with the patient. I gotcha. I gotcha. And so otherwise, let's say they are, they're, they're, they're not doing so great. The kind of algorithm of workup at that point is you bring them in and you're imaging and you start, I imagine, with just a plain film chest X-ray. Chest X-ray, and yeah. then and we do see normal chest X-ray, and then you get the CAT scan, oh. and it can be markedly abnormal. Almost always, if they're if they're severe enough, yeah, the chest X-ray is abnormal. And does pulmonary embolism masquerade as this sort of constellation ever? I so haven't seen. No, I will tell you, we've had DVTs, PEs, we've had an. Um, like uh, left atrial thrombus. Mm. We've had, so we, there is something going on with coagulation, but we're not sure if whether it's just like- an association or if there is something going on. But we've seen, so for example, we've seen more barotrauma, like yeah. pneumothoraces, pneumomediastinums, and then we've seen more DVTs, PEs in these this cohort. So we're looking at that, but PEs are not going to cause this diffuse ground glass infiltrate. Right, exactly. You know? And that's what you're seeing. And actually, we'll throw up, uh, you, you sent a chest x-ray, which we'll throw up right now, and a CT scan as right. well. And what you're seeing is this ground glass... Um, uh, opacities on the CT scan bilaterally. And that's a key thing, right? Bilateral, typically. Yeah. I mean, I have seen mostly unilateral, but usually there's a little... Oh, it's usually diffuse, because if you think about it, you vape, you're going to vape throughout Everyone. the lung. You know, yeah. you can't... Um, there is some, you know, uh, differential as far as some people maybe aerate a little better one side of the lung versus the other, but generally it's a bilateral. Mm-hmm. But... If somebody gives me a vaping history and has been vaping this THC and they got the THC from the black market and they have this dense ground glass, but it's mostly just on one lung, I'm still going to believe you. Still going to believe you, Valley. Yeah. But I'm going to cover for atypical infections. That's anyway. right. Do you bronch all these guys? No. No. So we took the stance of we're you know we're we are clinicians. We take care of patients and we try to do the best care. And also be judicious with expenses. Yeah. And so we're not going to... And complications. And complications. Mm -hmm. So our stance was, once we were clear, we understood how this happened and what was going on. And again, we have a group of like 30 telecritical care docs, and we're all talking to each other. And we're all working at different hospitals. So we're, you know, we had this very like rapid dissemination of education. That's great. So we really understood how to manage these patients. We disseminated care process guidelines. Um, in fact, we, I think we sent you some. Yep. Um, and, you know, we really disseminated knowledge base. So yep. once we realized, and we're, okay, we don't need to bronch every one of these cases. We did the first several. Sure. And then actually uh, one of, uh, several of our cases are actually in part of the New England Journal article that showed the vitamin E acetate and the BAL fluid. And we also did, now of course in, in our day when we trained, what did you test for for lipoid? It was Sudan black stain. Oh, interesting. And now we're doing oil red O. So different. Yeah, yeah, it's a different stain. Yeah. But it's still giving us the same information. The same info. So when people talk about oil red O stain, that's what they're talking that's about. They're, they're talking looking about. for the red stained macrophages, and you know that there's oil in the macrophages. And in a in all your cases, how many will have that be positive if you did a BAL on them, say of you know? Um I think all our oil red O's, there may have been one that wasn't positive. Got it. But again, we didn't, you know, we have over 120 cases. Yeah. And you're not BALing we, all we of them. We probably BALed um, 
2030. Got it. And you're certainly not lung biopsying these. No, 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 yeah, no, no. No way. And and in terms of the ones that need mechanical ventilation, is it an ARDS type picture where you're prone ventilating and you're doing all of this? Are you doing ECMO or is it, because I heard even that somebody got a lung or needed a lung, lung, trans- lung transplant. Lung transplant, yeah. yeah. Um, no, we, uh, you know, we have a really aggressive lung protective strategy ventilation computerized uh, protocol for lung ventilation. Mm -hmm. So, and we're part of the PEDALS program, which is the ARDS network throughout the country. So we have, in our system, we've standardized mechanical ventilation. So we're doing lung protective strategy. Yeah. So low tidal volume, you know, that, that kind of thing. And then, um, so what we found is we haven't had as many people on mechanical ventilation. We haven't lost one of these patients. So you have you no know. fatalities. In we your- have fatalities in a cohort from other medical problems. Got it. Okay. Co-morbid. But not from their E-Valley per se. I see. And our group. But yeah. again, we're, we're doing lung protective. Yeah. Uh, we didn't, I, I won't say. We may have put some, we may have prone somebody. Okay. We didn't do any ECMO. No ECMO in Utah. Got it. Well, we have it in at the U. We just started our ECMO program, but none of ours needed to be transferred for ECMO. Got it. And so nationally, there's been roughly 40 deaths, it sounds like. Yeah. And one lung transplant, it sounds as like. As far as I know. And yeah. I have a friend of mine from pulmonologist from Florida, and she says she's got patients probably going to get a lung transplant. Yeah. So it's. What, what's the average life expectancy you think after lung transplant? Um. Yeah, it's, it's 60, 70 percent, five year survival. I yeah. think it's I don't know that that's moved very much. I right. mean, we've done a lot better on uh, immunosuppression, right. you know, rejection meds and getting on top of the different complications. But that's not my area of expertise. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I mean, you can look it up on UpToDate and yeah. or somewhere and get the better data than I just Yeah, gave you. yeah. It's more the, the, the feeling that. If you if you need a lung transplant, that that's that's not a magical answer, and it means that this is a serious thing, and we ought to really take it seriously. Yeah, I mean, yeah. again, the incidence is very low. Yeah. Okay. So a lot of people are vaping, very very small percent. But then the question is, what are we going to see in twenty thirty years? That's that's that's. We've my got concern. a whole group of kids vaping now. Right. Are we going to see COPD? Are we going to see weird cancers? Are we going to see strange pulmonary hypertension? We don't know what we're going to see. Right. Yeah. I mean, when you're in your 20s, you can do almost anything. And I might have. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I might have extended that in my 30s. But yeah, I I would say that, uh, and again, I think think if you're going to influence young people too, we have to understand where they're coming from, like what's motivating them. And honestly, I mean, I was there. I understand it. This is very attractive as a strategy uh vaping that is compared to what existed before it and i but what we're not teaching is what are the risks and it was pretty clear with cigarettes you kind of got taught the risks and you did it because you didn't care or you made the you made the assumption that you were going to quit at some point or whatever it is like right I've, i think very few people start smoking young and they're like i'm gonna smoke the rest of my life I think it's very unusual. So it's interesting the psychology around it. And and so so here's a question. We're talking about risk and we're talking about, you know, the wide prevalence of vaping and the s- small incidence of the actual damage. Um, but we don't know what'll happen down the line. What what are your thoughts on this coronavirus thing? Uh, uh, you know, because <laughs> you now- You have the lung doctor in, so he's gonna have to ask you about that. gotta ask about that because uh, we're working on a parody for it, uh, My Corona uh, by The Knack, uh, but that's a whole nother discussion. But um, you, you, have you been involved at all in any uh, preparation for 
what might maybe the inevitable appearance of it in your state, or is it not uh, yet something that? It, as far as I know, as of last night, it hadn't hit the state. Yeah. You know, but um, so in our system, um, we have a really well vetted uh, infectious disease dissemination of information. So, for example, we have what we call GermWatch. Ah. In fact, I was just looking at it. So, our influenza A is going up, influenza B, RSV is going up, not as high as last year. You know, so we get these graphs, so we get this knowledge of what's going up, what viruses are out there, metanumavirus, other viruses. So we're tracking this, and this is sent to the clinicians. Across okay? the Intermountain system. As, across the system. Using your EHR data, probably. Yes. Yeah, Epic. And we have Cerner. Oh, Cerner, okay. So, yeah. um, and this is really run through infectious diseases. And then they've also, I mean... We've gotten several alerts, the clinicians, as to what to do, how to isolate, steps to be done. So if I have a patient that has at risk, in fact, it's part of our now intake system. Oh, yeah, you're asking yeah, questions. Every person that comes in, have you uh, been to mainland reminds China? Reminds me of Ebola, yeah. You know, so it's important to, to know. We've got um, our state people travel all the time. And so it's very important to know, are, is anybody at risk? And then we have protocols to set in uh, isolation. So I'm not worried about how we do it because we can ask the questions. We'll isolate quickly. We'll send the testing off. We have a very well-vetted system. It's interesting because the E-Valley was an infection. Right. So we had all our protocols in place how to handle infection. In fact, infectious diseases was early on involved in our E-Valley outbreak. But then they backed off because it's like it's not it's an a, infection. Thinking it's a mystery. <laughs> and that's appropriate, right? Yeah. Because is this some weird atypical new infection? Weird. Is it a fungus? Is it mm -hmm. something that we're not testing for? Do you guys get coxie out where you are? Is it endemic? Very little. Yeah. And so, so and that was the other thing is some of the places, you know, in the Midwest, Ohio, they had, you know, histo, right? Yeah. So they worry about that. And then patients, if you're down in Arizona, you have to worry about uh, valley fever. Right. You know? Yeah. So it really depended on kind of the area of the country. So... The areas of the country that they had other endemic funguses that mm. could mimic this. It's really, those really don't create quite these x ray pictures, mm. but you have to be careful. They were more aggressively testing for those other entities. It makes perfect sense. I mean, mind you, when I did a bronchoscopy, obviously I sent it off for fungal cultures, but you have to. Yeah. Not, none of ours were positive. Yeah. Wow. So, what do you think is the next step in this Evali syndrome? understanding what are you working on next so again we're a big clinical system we are working with the university of utah we've combined efforts so we're looking at long term what's the effects of these patients that have been impacted um what are the damage to their lungs we're probably not going to be doing these are young people so we're probably not going to be doing surveillance ct scans what you know we have to be careful exposing people to radiation we can do Lung testing, mm. that's safe. Yeah. And we can do questionnaires. We're also going to be working with patients. We're going to get a group of our patients together and see what we can learn from them going forward. You know, get from the patients themselves. What happened? Why did you do this? What's happening? What's out there? Talk to us about what's going on in the community. Are, are you finding that any of them are uh, really failing to quit vaping? Even after all this? So we've had a couple resume vaping, land back in the hospital. Oh, my God. Really? And then stop vaping again. Oh, so, so, it, so it did. It, it triggered right away. Mm -hmm. And that was just e-nicotine probably they were vaping or they were going back to THC. We don't know. Don't know. Oh, my gosh. And it so, speaks and again, to how Yeah. And again, those were early on cases. Right. And some of the cases we found in retrospect. 
Okay. And so we're cases in, so we started looking in August, but then maybe we had a patient from July and then we yeah. said, wait, were you vaping? Have you been vaping? Oh, that's why you came back in the hospital. Yeah. So yeah. And again, this was a whole learning curve. So long term, what are the outcomes? Right. Uh, we are trying to, we as in the medical community, yeah. scientific community, yeah. would like to develop an animal model. And I know that somebody's working on that, but I don't, we're not working on sure, that. Sure, sure. Um, and then the other thing is how to, um, one other project worth thinking about trying to do is some sort of AI with uh, radiographic identification of this. Oh, that'd be interesting. Yeah. So again, this is very Pattern preliminary, but yeah. again, we're trying to learn. And then we've actually um, published data and we're going to be publishing more data, educating people, not only kind of uh, what we found, what we've done, our protocols, we've been disseminating our protocols widely. So other people, if they, you know, they're up in Idaho, they've never seen a case. Oh, what did Intermountain Docs do? Because, you know, we have one of the largest cohorts. Mm. how they do? And we're available by phone. I've been called from multiple states yeah. out of the country. So, <laughs> yeah, that's it's really cool. What's really cool about that is you're a clinician. So you're on the front lines. They <laughs> take care of patients. You take care of patients. <laughs> like you don't have to be a pointed headed, pointy headed ap- academic as cloistered in some tower <laughs> to actually do really good science in the world. And, and it's epidemiology, it's clinical care, and it's just being a good human being and a good doctor. So I am. I was really <laughs> stoked when I heard from you and was oh, happy to, <laughs> really thrilled to have you on the show. Now, I want you to throw me a bone here because one of your other, as we kind of wrap up, one of your other passions is complicated pulmonary sleep stuff. Can you just just take me through real quick? Like, what is that? Like, what are you working? Like, how does that? Because So, it, you know, I, so I'm boarded and I've trained in critical care medicine, pulmonary medicine, and then sleep medicine. Yeah. So... Because there's not enough pulmonologists to see all the pulmonary cases, you know, we're in short supply. So we really don't see a lot of the simple. I'm not going to see the simple asthma case in my right. clinic. Right. Um, but so I have a patient maybe has severe COPD or maybe has uh, severe hypoxia, pulmonary hypertension. But then they also have sleep apnea. Uh-huh. And sometimes I'll see the patients with central sleep apnea, a combination. So those are the cases that I tend to see more than just a garden variety sleep apnea. They have no other medical problems. Got it. Tell me about central sleep apnea. What are some of the causes of that? That's- so central sleep apnea is very interesting, yeah. and there can be multiple causes. You know, you get the chain stokes, yep. right, with heart failure. Heart failure. And then you can have it from a number of neurologic diseases. Mm. Um, I, I have a patient who's been on a ventilator at night because he does not breathe after having a brainstem stroke. Oh, wow. You know, so it, you know, there's a lot of drivers for respiration. When you're awake, you have you know a lot more drivers, but then you go to your autonomic system and there's a lot of things that can break down. Yeah. For, so, um, cl- closed head injuries, TBIs, you know. Um, do you, you, can do you affect- see vets as well or you're mm-hmm. not? A- yeah, mm-hmm. got it. And um, yeah, so you can have idiopathic hypersomnia or hypersomnia post-TBI. You can It can affect your respiration centers. Mm. Almost always the chemical imbalance triggers it breathing right 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 you know right. so your co2 rises enough you get enough acidotic so you you'll go. breathe yeah you know because you'll have other drivers for breathing right but so right. central sleep apnea is very fast fascinating we still don't really understand chain stokes yeah yeah we never you know? did back in the day no we don't we just learn to recognize it, it. We, are, do you see any uh, secondary pulmonary hypertension from these disorders 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And how do you manage that? You treat the underlying disorder. So you you decide, okay, first off, treat the underlying disorder. And then I have some patients that I will treat the pulmonary hypertension patients with pulmonary hypertension meds. Right. Flolan yeah. or something? Or? Well, not yeah, usually. Not, yeah. not that Not that. Not that. <laughs> that goes to the primary yeah. pulmonary hypertension people. Right, right. But I'll do like Treclear, Sildenafil, Got those it. meds. Got it. Um, but I, Viagra, we call it, but it's not. Yeah. It's different dosing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Exactly. Got it. Got it. And 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 does it happen equally in men and women who have uh, underlying sleep disorders, the pulmonary hypertension? Well, you in know your experience. Okay, so let me explain one thing. Yeah, I live at forty two hundred feet. Ah. Okay. So when I was, I practiced in Pennsylvania for ten years. Yeah. So I don't don't didn't see the hypoxia related with sleep that I see in utah oh interesting and then i have patients that will have cabins up in the mountains mm. so they'll be at eight thousand feet mm. so my cohort of patients are vastly different mm. like um and i'll have patients it's typically not the young people mm. but people will come ski you know come out to utah they'll go up to park city and they get sick yeah you, know, you, yeah, yeah. you probably have friends who if you go ski some of them can't like go to a ski area that's super high right 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 that's right. interesting. So, so we have more hypoxia, right? Just uh, as a baseline. Yeah. Do you, do you do you get you get people with a lot of um, elevated hematocrits and things mm-hmm. like that? Oh yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I, I found my hematocrit went up just moving to Las Vegas. We were we were up in Summerlin. It's like twenty five three thousand feet, not even right. that high. But I was swimming a lot, and my hematocrit was like you know fifty or something. I so forget. So you were what it was. blood doping as well. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm so just. So then, ma- when you came down, you made sure you did your races in here. Exactly. <laughs> come back to there. the bay. Come down to sea level. I'm crushing the competition. <laughs> yeah, that's you know, what you do. With all the uh, amazing sports that I do, because uh, you know, no, 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 it's it's kind of interesting. But yeah, so so that that's fascinating. So, man, I anything else you want to leave us with? You know, I think that what we need to understand is there's not a blame here. Let's mm. just um, have open conversations and uh, receive, you know, kind of patients where they are. Mm. And I do think this kind of slipped as far as everybody understanding the potential damages. Mm. And the science has lagged behind what we know about any kind of vaping. Yeah. So vape nothing in your, don't breathe anything in your lungs, but clean air. I like that. I kind of <laughs> like that. If you need to do THC, do an edible, you know, other there's other options do you hear that everyone dixie harris says eat that weed (laughs) if you need to (laughs) that's all that that makes a lot of sense and are there any websites or anything that any resources that i can point people to or is it just you know so probably the best website and you know we never did show the x-rays oh no no no. we show them after the fact i put them in yeah yeah. okay just making sure yeah um uh, the CDC has beautiful picture of E Valley. It's a beautiful diagram, a cartoon of kind of what it looks like as far as how it was burning the lungs. Ah, so there's CDC. really great resources on on the CDC for patients, for providers. There's a good picture dictionary about all the different types of uh, electronic devices. Mm. So it's really a good resource, and we've worked really hard. I've been one of their clinicians that's helped through the E Valley, but there's a lot of people that work super hard on this. Okay, that's important. So I will include the CDC links to learn more about E Valley and vaping related yeah. injury. Um, people can find you on the internets, I'm sure, at Intermountain. If you're in yes. Utah, they can find <laughs> you as a doctor. You're going to get all these people. I have mild asthma, and I was like, no, no, no. I just said on the show. <laughs> 
take care of very sick people. There's very few of us. So thank you, Dixie You're Harris, welcome. Dr. Harris, for everything that you've done uh, as a, as what's effectively a citizen scientist, because this was not part of some big university study to identify this. You really are responsible for saving and changing lives. No, it's my whole, the whole team, our whole ICU, telecritical care team, all our nurses, everybody is working hard on this. That's awesome. And I want to thank Intermountain Healthcare for letting you off the offer for, for an afternoon day. to come hang out with us because <laughs> I know there's other people covering and they're like why did she get to go and I don't get to go <laughs> right. so so thanks a million and ZPAC listen guys if you like this kind of content and stuff support the show subscribe on YouTube Facebook all the usual jazz but the main way you can support us is by sharing this content, especially this episode, because we want to get the word out and make sure we don't miss any cases that are arising because we didn't triage it right, we didn't ask the right questions, or we our index of suspicion wasn't high. We can learn to talk to our patients. I think my takeaway here is to ask patients, do you breathe anything into your lungs that isn't just plain old air? That's a great way to ask that question. I learned that today. So guys, I love you, and we out. Peace.